Hey, what's going on, everybody? And welcome back to a Thursday, May 12th, 2022 edition here on the Chase Thomas Podcast. Very, very jam-packed show for you guys on this edition of the podcast. We've got uh, a plethora of fun guests. We have uh, Graham Coffee to kick things off here. Uh, Graham and I talked all things college football, SEC, where college football is going, pod scheduling, a uh, little Tennessee, a little Georgia, uh, all that and more with Graham to kick things off here. But I uh, appreciate Graham coming on this program to do just that. We also had Will DeWitt, uh, who is a great Chicago Bears reporter for CHGO Sports, and he covers the Bears for CHGO, which is a great uh, sports um, company that you should go check out if you are a Chicago fan and you are not already familiar with it. So go check that out again if you've not already checked it out before. If you're a Bears fan, Cubs fan, White Sox, uh, whoever, Blackhawks, go check them out on uh, CHGO. Uh, but thanks again to Will for coming on this edition of the podcast. It was great talking some Bears, Justin Fields, uh, their first draft with their new administration, uh, what this team's going to look like, if there's going to be some Packers DNA on the offense. Uh, a lot of fun stuff in that regard. Um, we also had Daniel Alvarez, uh, who was great and uh, L extra base to talk about the Miami Marlins. We also talked about Venezuela and uh, baseball as a whole right now, Ronald Acuna, Mi Cabrera, baseball in Venezuela, um, the World Baseball Classic, uh, Jazz Chisholm, uh, the Marlins start to the season, their insane pitching depth and just the youth uh, of just there and what's going to happen this summer, uh, Derek Jeter's exit, um, a lot of different things that uh, we hit on, but it was, it was great having Daniel on as well. Just a jam-packed show for you guys uh, this morning, so... Uh, thank you for checking it out. Um, don't forget, folks, you can watch this very program. Oh, yeah, we're on YouTube, youtube.com, type in the Chase Most Podcast. That easy, that simple. You'll find all of our episodes, clips, videos, everything on the Chase Most Podcast YouTube channel. So go check that out today if you've not already done so. Also, uh, if you uh, are not already subscribed, make sure that you are subscribed to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or however you get your podcast to make sure that you never miss an episode. New episodes go up 3 a.m. every single day, East Coast time, uh, to be ready for you guys in your morning commute. So uh, just look out for that in your podcast feed at this time every single morning. New content for me all across the board. Uh, so hope you guys enjoy it. Uh, it's halftime, <laughs> and when I say halftime, I, uh, as most folks know in my personal life, I record a lot of stuff to balance out my day and everything I got going on, so uh, I've had uh, Bucks Celtics Game Vibes uh, recording, um, so, uh, so I could record earlier, but yeah, halftime, uh, really, really electric second quarter from uh, the Celtics, and uh, I cannot believe that basket did not count by Derek White at the buzzer. That was pretty wild, but uh, fun game, great Giannis quarter in the second quarter, Tatum, uh, good Derek White stuff, but uh, interested to see how that goes. But you guys already know that because the, the game's already happened, but that's where I'm at. So after I put this up, guess what? I'm hopping right back in. Uh, make sure to go read me at sportsrenaissanceman.substack.com. Sportsrenaissanceman, that's me. Uh, type in your email and make sure you get all my written content there. Uh, more stuff will be coming up uh, next week, but I'm still in the thick of finals and the end of this semester here uh, in graduate school at the University of Tennessee. So I'm kind of swamped on the writing front with papers and other things. So uh, 
just just a lot to to deal with over the next week or so but then after that we'll be back to normal um don't forget folks you can also follow me on twitter at chase underscore thomas and like the facebook page at facebook.com slash chase thomas writer all right i think that's it and uh uncle darren let's go chase thomas podcast the chase thomas podcast um my nephew needs me to record see i hate i already hate it i hate it all right we're back here on the chase thomas podcast where i am now joined by graham coffee dog out west is it out west because you're in colorado you're really like the midwest i feel like it's a misnomer whoa whoa all right so first of all i live in southwest colorado so Uh i'm really in like the four corners i live Uh in durango so I'm like six and a half hours from Denver. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I mean, like maybe you can call Denver the Midwest because it is a stone's mm-hmm. throw from Nebraska and Kansas. But I'm going to I'm gonna call myself a, a Westerner, you know. I'm not that far from the Central Time Zone. Or I'm sorry, from the uh, Western Pacific Time Zone. So. Well, I mean, you're just a buff. Like the Colorado Buffaloes making the Pac-12 jump. Now everyone in Colorado thinks because they're Pac-12 school – uh, you know, when I think of the Pacific Ocean, I think of uh, Boulder, Colorado. But uh... <laughs> well, you know, in fairness, I don't think much of anyone in uh, Colorado thinks about the Buffs that much these days. Yikes. Sadly, so yeah. I mean, I'll say that my experience living here for five years now is that mm. uh, you see a lot more like Colorado State memorabilia, mm. and you know, I think that's because Boulder has become very transplant Hmm. sort of oriented and and also just a lot of the kids that are coming to colorado are not natives of colorado and maybe not staying in colorado after graduation so it it is a interesting dynamic i think you're underplaying the value of jay norvell making the the flip from nevada to colorado state that nothing energizes the fan base like the man who developed carson strong uh that's true well yeah, I'm a big Jay Norvell can, guy. That's not even tongue in cheek. He's gonna be no. Good. I like Jay Norvell. He's great, and and I like Carson Strong too. He mm. was he like was really good. Uh, kind of 10 p.m. time slot entertainment yes. for college football last year. Uh, I also think if if you have a fan base that can stay enthusiastic and engaged through Steve Adazio, then yeah, nothing can kill them, right? Guys being dudes. Um, <laughs> That's correct. Yeah. <laughs> That's all I'll ever think about with him is, does he have another job? What is he doing now? Did he get another job or is he out? Uh, I'm sure he's like an NFL, you know, position coach assistant or something. Mm, the Jeremy point. Pruitt route. Um, I, I, that's just totally a guess. But anybody that's like in the Urban Meyer um, inner sanctum kind of always. Oh, so he's the OL coach at Texas A&M now. Is he really? Yeah, I didn't know that. That's that's kind of wild. Um, so huh. I guess a lot of five star recruits are going to get yelled at and maybe slightly discriminated against. That's interesting. Yikes, Walter Nolan, yeah. come on home. Um, <laughs> well, Graham, I wanted to talk a little SEC East as long as the Eastern Division still uh, exists because yeah. the ACC is like uh, we're potting, we're potting ahead. Um, I would love to pod. I love to pod. I have a pod. You have a pod. Podding sure. is the future. Um, not only are we killing radio, but we're also killing divisions in college football. Um, I'm excited for this. I think it's a long time coming. I, I don't think it's been necessary. I will say one of the things I've noticed is like, so national folks or just like, 
the people who are no longer attached to like a team and they cover the team object or cover college football objectively one mm-hmm. of their blind spots is how they talk about um what's good for tv and what like is good for the sport and i think they miss a lot of things so one of the things I, I, I think they miss and i don't even think it's their fault it's just when you leave that that just kind of inner sanctum and just become the national objective study everything from afar like you just miss certain things and one of the things they miss is like oh it's great that we get to i was i'm not gonna say, shout out who it was but it people that I respect that I was listening to today, they were talking about the ACC flipping to this. And it looks like it's coming in 2023, which is pretty amazing that this is happening this fast because most things in college football just don't really... uh, You can't get everybody on the same page uh, that quickly, by and large. But it seems like it's a uh, universally approved thing. But one of the things one of the hosts said was, well, this is great because most college football fans... want to play everybody and they don't like that they don't get to play everybody and they want more diversity in their schedule and i was like well that's not true like that's not a thing so that's just not reality if you talk to a tennessee fan they're not like man i would love to like even with our struggles with bama and florida Mm -hmm. and just the issues there year over year it's not like we're chomping at the bit to sub them out for more uh old miss games like that's not that's not so like it, that is a cool thing that we should have more diversity in the calendar, but the more diversity right. should come with cutting out the pay for play games, like cutting out the Akron games, agree. the Army games. But the idea that college football fans and these fans of these universities and Georgia fans, like they don't want to get like if it if it means removing some rivalries that they have every year at just for more diversity in the calendar, I would say that more Georgia fans would be upset about losing somebody like Auburn or Tennessee yearly for just more diversity in their calendar. So I get the pod stuff and I think it's ultimately a good idea, but I would look more towards the nine conference game slate and then just maybe three, sometimes even two, but preserving the rivalries is like one of the last things that we have that makes us, uh, that just differentiates from the NFL. Yes. And when you move that, like I can understand why it makes more sense but I think you're completely misunderstanding what college football fans actually want, which is the rivalries on Saturdays. And if you only do Tennessee, Georgia once every four years or whatever, mm-hmm. that's not good for the sport. And it's not good for the fans. They don't want that. So I, I agree with that uh, to a certain extent. I, mm-hmm. I think that like, I, I agree with you that I don't, I don't think fan bases want to switch those core traditional mm-hmm. rivals for, you know, a, an extra trip to Oxford yeah. every decade or whatever. But I do think that uh, maybe they would like to switch out Vanderbilt yeah. for an extra trip to Oxford every decade, or uh, you know, pick pick whatever kind of lower lower tier team in the division that that they play every year. Right? Um, I I think where this is going to be interesting is kind of these pods will get built based on, you know, yes, some sort of historical precedent in terms of rivalry, but probably also based on trying to balance out who's good now. Mm-hmm. And and that's going to change, right? Like, that's yeah. very fluid in college football, especially in the SEC. Um, if pods had gotten built two years ago, how would we have looked at Arkansas then versus how mm-hmm. we might place them now? So I think that part is, is a little sketchy. Um which honestly makes me feel like maybe maybe the model that's that's better is just you have protected rivals and mm-hmm. every year a, a a group or the commissioner's office or someone on a committee kind of 
builds out your your conference schedule in a similar way that the NFL does, um, but you still have your protected rivals. But yeah, I, I think at the end of the day, like if the SEC is going to be sixteen teams, and you have to do pods, and it is going to be sixteen teams. Um, Georgia has kind of famously still never played at Texas A and M, yeah. right? And and they've been in the league for over a decade now, so. I do think it's good as a fan. I think it's interesting. Um, I struggle a little bit with the the idea of like eliminating the some of the the paycheck games, not from an entertainment standpoint, but mostly because I think a lot of schools that play college football only can survive as college football schools with those paycheck games. But why right? can't we just pay them? Like that's the other thing. Is like well, maybe they should. Yeah, yeah, maybe there's a pool and. You know, I mean, I, I do think we are careening headlong into a separation within the FBS, uh, even which further. I am absolutely here for. Like this, is I'm something. fine with it. Yeah, it's got yeah. it, It's already kind of happened on its own, right? Um, yeah, Cincinnati did go to the playoff last year, but uh, they also couldn't you, beat Bama and Georgia in back-to-back games. Like that's not a feasible proposition. True. So it's like, yeah, it's great, but they're still. It, it, they're still playing a different sport by and right. large. And the Cincinnati and NIL are, yeah. is going to just separate that more and more. Right. Interesting. Like, See, I don't think it's NIL that separates it more. I think it's the transfer portal that separates that more where that's a good bigger point. programs have to be like, they can just pick off the programs like the Eastern Michigan to the middle Tennessee States. Like, Oh, this running back you've been for three years, we're pulling you to the university of Tennessee. We're giving you an upgrade for one final year. NIL, if you have a big boost... But NIL is driving the transfer portal in a lot of ways. Yeah, but I think... I don't don't know if Jameer Gibbs is making that move based on NIL money. Like, I I don't know if Eli Rick... I mean, he's not a good one because he's going to get NIL money from either where... Sure. I think it's a case-by-case basis, but I would say where I'm sitting right now and the folks that I've talked to, it seems like the bigger issue for a group of five coaches is placating their star players and being worried about becoming a farm system for the big boys versus the NIL dollars where the haves have always had the money and the haves have always not had the money. But what they have not been able to do is talk to players on other teams and recruit and say, we're going to give you X amount of dollars to come here. Like, it's just, I I think the transfer portal is the biggest, like the biggest issue, the biggest um, iceberg uh, for college football over the foreseeable future, because I just don't think there's a good way of fixing that. NIL, I'm not as concerned about it. I think it's a long time coming out. I just don't feel bad about the NCAA with NIL whatsoever. No. But I also, the transfer window should have been like immediate thing. Like the fact that we did not have a transfer window just outlined and ready to go when we did this just screwed over a bunch of coaches. And I know people are not going to shed a lot of tears for millionaire coaches, but their job sucks right now. And it does suck. And that's just the reality. So it's like that. My, the Matt Luke's of the world. You're gonna just see more guys try and win young, and then get out. And then they're like, maybe I'll I'll take a break, and then I'll come back later. But you're gonna see more turn, more churn uh, on the college football coaching carousel, I think, than ever before. I agree with that, and I think we have to stop that mm-hmm. to a to an extent. Um, I don't agree with how the NCAA, I'm sure, is going to try and go about, you know. Uh, regulating the transfer portal mm-hmm. and some of this NIL stuff, but I do agree that it needs to be regulated and there needs to be schedules. There, there needs to be some deadlines. Uh, I don't like, 
I, I'm all for everyone getting their money, right? Mm-hmm. I, but I also think that the thing that I love about college football um, is just the Neutral the regionalism. Games. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, at Jerry World. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, just but I, I enjoy the regionalism of college football. I enjoy the diversity of different fan bases and different schools and just kind of the the bigger pot of teams to be interested in than what you get from a pro league. And so if we get to a point where, you know, the the tampering of like calling up a kid that, that isn't in the portal and, and saying, come on down for X amount of money. Like we got to figure that out a little bit. Right. Um, You know, there, there needs to, to be a way to kind of allow, allow the sport to keep, some of its diversity in terms of which teams are interesting and which aren't and interesting teams are only interesting if they have talent. So, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's like, I, I've always been a nerd for those kind of random teams that, that popped up and were really good. Like the, the Arizona teams of the early nineties with the, the desert swarm defense and brewski and like, uh, that, that big stable of running backs. Like that's always been a fascinating group to me you know what i mean mm. and so i don't want college football to to lose like the 2007 west virginia's um where you know maybe that team doesn't have a, a legit shot at winning a national title going through the the gamut of a playoff but but that's not what college football is about it's not about i still want to see them there yeah. yeah exactly totally and i think that what you just said right there like it's not just about winning national titles and it's not just about making or not making a playoff and yeah. Uh, the problem is that I think NCAA football, college football has allowed a bunch of people who really kind of enjoy a pro sports model more than yeah. a college sports model to to come in and determine their model. And I, I argue with my buddy Josh on our show about this all the time. We've had like screaming matches over it. But, uh, you know, how, how many regular season college basketball games does the average fan watch versus the amount of interest they have in the NCAA tournament. And I think where we are at the playoff right now, you can still say that the regular season matters more than it does Mm -hmm. in any other sport, but we're, we're close to kind of tipping, tipping past that to where that, that three thirty CBS game where it's tied with eight minutes left in the fourth quarter. And the whole stadium feels like, you know, the entire world is on the line we're close to losing that. Well, we're going to lose the CBS 330 game either way, yeah. but um, I don't want to lose that because I think just as not just as a fan, but also as someone that that's a content creator, um, I think I might struggle to, to keep the same amount of like passion and interest in, in that content creation as I do now, because the the stakes just aren't quite as high. Right. Um, well, their hope so is it's like the NFL, where the NFL regular season numbers are fine, and people are just as interested that's in true. the playoffs as the regular season in the NFL. And I think there is a point, like, there, it's still, football will always be king because it's appointment television. They're still, it's, yes. if they were expanding the regular season into like 18, 19 games or something, and they were really adding more, more to the calendar, I think that would be more of an issue, because part of the appeal is that there's only so many Saturdays. Um, like it just football season just comes and goes so quickly. You just you blink and uh, Tennessee just scored again on South Carolina. Like it's just it's one of those things that if you if you just look away for one second, there's another one. 
Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I, I'm with you. I'm with you. But at the same time, like, I love the part of college football where, you know, maybe a close loss to a, a fellow top five, top ten team won't ruin your season. Mm. One of them won't. But I love the fact that, like, buddy – if uh, if you're Ohio State and you go to Iowa and you get that ass beat by mm-hmm. by 35 points, like that's it, you yeah. know, because you don't deserve to win a national title at that point, in my personal opinion. Um, and, and I think we'll we'll kind of lose that. Like I, I see, truthfully, to kind of distill this down, I think that all of the stuff that's happened with college football postseason conversation over the last two to three years has been the product of a Bama fatigue problem. Hmm. And that college football administrators are creating a permanent solution to an impermanent problem. Yeah. And that eventually, yes, it feels like they've been there forever, and they have in many ways, but eventually everything cycles out. And I just love the idea that they think that a lot of expanding the playoff is going to solve that or 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 solve attendance problems. It's like, it's just as uh, Graham. We need to be in the room. Like I would love to be in the room for these meetings because oh, so much. I would love to just hear their back and forth and hear where they're, but where everybody's coming from. Like I, I would just be so curious about it because I, I just think there's a fundamental misunderstanding. Like they should actually have a at least three super fans, three season ticket holders in the build, <laughs> like in the room at all times. I'm with you. I think it'd be awesome. I think it would yeah. just add a add a layer of nuance they just don't have like they they need that perspective and i think there is some kind of like oh it's all about the playoff it's about playoff revenue we would rather i think they see it as like oh if we can talk about this thing every single week it's never going anywhere like we can have every broadcast be built around oh they have to win this game because if they or if they only win by this then that affects their playoff chances by this like it's not nearly as fun like it's not it's just one of those things where they're creating stakes that no one's asking for. It's like there was no college football fan in 2004 that were like, you know what this sport's missing? Some more stakes and us looking towards January. You weren't looking towards January. The point should be savor September, savor October, savor November. If we like, I love the NFL, but I have the NFL for that other thing. That's not Mm -hmm. why I like college football. And that's not why the majority of college football fans like the sport. When we're watching another touchdown being scored by Tennessee against South Carolina, we're not thinking like, oh, could we make the college football playoff? No, we're enjoying that moment. Like, yeah, no, it's just fun. Like, I'm just enjoying what's happening. I'm not thinking about what comes in January and like who's going to get in and who's going to get out. And that's how most college football fans are. But if you ask these people who are in this in these rooms making these decisions, it seems like there's a complete misunderstanding about what people actually want. It's like. Hey, if you're going to get like the uh, the latest example is, hey, oh, uh, attendance numbers are continuing to decline year over year. What if we just got rid of even more rivalries? What if we throw more just like here's this team you're going to play once every four years and make it more robotic and more just like homogenize things even further? Yeah. Like who like (laughs) just talk to like eight fans around the SEC and just see what their response is. Then you're like, oh. Maybe we, we 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 didn't read the room correctly. Let's reevaluate. But it's just they don't do that. And I think it, the worst part too is just that like I want bowl season gone. I want to cut it. I want to punt it into the sun. I it hurts me. I grew up on bowl season. I love 
do my bowl predictions with my family. Uh-huh. I love it. I love having college football on at 2 o'clock in the afternoon on a Wednesday. Yes. But it's over. Like, once the playoff expanded into four, and once we decided the playoff was more important than the bowl season, the opt-outs were coming. And that was just, like, you can't get that back. So if we just I mean, have, that's fine. Yeah. Just, just get, let's, it's let's still a pretending. college football game. Yeah. yeah, it's fine. I'm cool with it. Um yeah, and I think that when you talk about like the biggest kind of alarm bell for me when I listen to some of the national discourse on this mm-hmm. issue is when someone's like, I want to do this because it'll create more meaningful games. And that immediately tells me you don't understand college football. Right. Because if you understood college, you know, I, I had a conversation with uh, Dan Wetzel at Yahoo. Mm-hmm. He came on our pod last year and he was like, how great would it be if the Egg Bowl was for a college football playoff spot. And I was like, Dan, do you realize that people are ready to, like, cut one another in the parking lot of the Egg Bowl when it's four and eight versus, mm-hmm. you know, five and seven? Yep. Like, that, you know, if you understand college football, you understand that every single game has emotional implications. It has job security implications. Mm-hmm. It has recruiting implications. It has fan pride. About, you're getting fired. Like, that's just how yeah. it goes. Totally. And that's pretty meaningful Mm -hmm. no matter whether or not there's a playoff spot on the line. So, yeah. And, and, I mean, I I think especially uh, as we kind of go through the the NIL era with recruiting and all of that, it's like, no, 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 don't be mistaken that it's just going to be money, Mm -hmm. right? Like, there might be a couple instances where that is true, but the vast majority of blue-chip prospects – still are making decisions based off of is this program on the rise is it on the fall who's going to be well, there it's, who's it's not? good that All you said that. that because this can lead us into the arch nico thing where Please. it's like some of the, the people who just do not like they really want to hate tennessee and i understand like we're in everything school number one in baseball uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh man that is so rich. Uh, I, need to, I need to hold on. I'm making a note that you just spit out your uh, <laughs> at the 2140 uh, mark there. That was my goal. I mean, you know, if, yeah. yeah. Whenever, you know, if you can get Rick Barnes to coach you in the first week of the NCAA tournament, you got to do it, right? That's enough. Um, <laughs> so I uh, we actually got the dogs in town this weekend, so I'm excited to – do you, I don't know. I don't know what the point differential will be. At least thirty to eleven somewhere around there. But we'll see. I, I, if Georgia's able to like kind of keep, and Georgia's probably the second best team in the East this year. Yeah. Um, at least standings wise, they definitely are. But I think like if Georgia was able to uh, win one game, everyone would be ecstatic. But I think maybe maybe more realistic is like let's let's keep one close and get to the the eighth and ninth and feel like you know anything can happen. Um, well, and that's a compliment to you guys. Oh, you thanks, know? man. Yeah, I, I do. I do wonder what will happen in the postseason with that team. I don't want to be number one. Like there has not been a number one team yeah. that went in like over twenty years or something. It's pretty totally. wild. Yeah, it's um, always that. Like when Georgia was in the College World Series in 07, yeah. I was a freshman. Gordon Beckham. Yeah, Gordon Beckham, the the, the legend. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I knew the guys that rented the house in right field, so we would watch a lot of games out there. <laughs> there and, you go. Uh, yeah, it was a blast. No, it was, it was one of my favorite like experiences as a college student. But, uh, yeah, that team played Miami in the College World mm-hmm. Series in the first game, and Miami was kind of that juggernaut that had lost, you know, 
very few games all mm-hmm. year, and and they beat them. And Miami did not make it to the the final of right. the College World Series. It's so. hard, man. It's hard to make it through. Uh, but it, ooh, it's a crapshoot. It is a crapshoot. And the one thing I was going to say about Nico and Arch is that like. A lot of people are like making the jokes because we still don't know if Nico is the eight million dollar guy. That will never come out publicly. That will never be known. Um, come on. Well, we we don't know, Graham. We don't know who that. It's okay. Be. It's legal. It's we okay. Let's just. All right. Well, for the purposes of this conversation, can we? No, can we, can, we, work we can. work under the hypothesis that you can order the hypothesis. Is? Yes, you can do that. Okay. You can hypothesize that Nico is the eight million dollar guy. Cool. You can hypothesize that. Um, but Nico is. Like, part of what he talked about, the reason that he chose Hypel uh-huh. was the offense. Like, he taught, he's seen the stats for Dylan Gabriel at UCF. He's seen what Drew Locke did sure. at Missouri. Like, there is, you, if this was still Pruitt and Spire Sports offering $8 million to replicate what Jared Garantano was doing for two years, he's not saying yes. Like, he's not in the conversation. So, I think there's like maybe. weird. Maybe. <sighs> Depends on, I think, probably not. But maybe in rare depending on one's personal circumstances and what other bids are in the marketplace, maybe, yeah. maybe 8 million does do it, but, um, I'm but sorry. But it's still the excitement Continue. that like, Oh, he can just turn Hendon hooker who we didn't know was a downfield guy whatsoever. Cause of what we saw at Virginia tech. And he was a Pruitt guy in January and was just kind of like a holdover. And he kind of got screwed by the coaching, like coaching change. And yeah. he sticks it out and he and Joe are super close and Joe Milton stayed on board um, to be the backup because that's even harder to do. Like y'all have been able to do it down in Athens, but that's a new thing with the portal is you just you don't know if someone like Harrison Bailey left late in the late last season. We were down to like a walk. Where did he land? A, UNLV. Interesting. Yeah. Um, so I, I just I'm curious to see like what this looks like because Nico is putting together a great staff, but for Arch, there's a completely different sell. Because Nico can just be like, I can be an instant Heisman guy in Heupel's offense. Like, I'm going to put up bonkers numbers like this. Look at what he's done with Hendon Hooker, who is just an all-time great leader, and we love Hendon up here. But it's still just like the the upside with Nico is pretty wild. Like, it's mm-hmm. it's, it's it's a lot to think about. It's a, it's a program changer. Like, Nico is a program changer for the Heupel era. But, can I, yes. So, I've, I've said this on Twitter. You might have seen me say it and just avoided because mm. because you're a good person. But I think, as a, an observer of of Georgia uh, and just the SEC and college football in general, yeah, I think the the floor is so high on Heupel's offense for quarterbacks mm-hmm. that I don't know that it really does change. From a perception standpoint, yes, okay, having a five-star mm. quarterback on campus is always a great thing. It always helps recruiting, yada, yada, yada. But, like, on field, does it really change Tennessee's outlook in terms of how many games do I think they win with him that they wouldn't without him? Well, I think not, it's the whole – Not much, honestly. Well, it's um, the Francis Malalaga or whatever his last name, the offensive tackle out of IMG and him going yeah. after him. And Carnell Tate, who looks like he's on the way, and it's it's the whole it's it's getting everybody else like he, it's the it's right who he but, brings in with him. Okay, and I agree, but the the skill positions are never going to be a problem in that offense, right? Mm-hmm. It is I, like if Tennessee was going out and signing five star defensive ends, and yeah, you know, well, we, five, got a four star Caleb Herring, best player in the state of Tennessee. Nice, and that's great. Don't get me wrong, but I'm just saying, like, 
if if Tennessee was able to go out and spend money to build, and this is a multi-year process, but to go out mm-hmm. and spend money to build up their line of scrimmage, something akin to what Georgia and Alabama have yeah. done, that would terrify me if I was a Georgia fan or, or an Alabama fan. Right? Well, I think that's uh, Tennessee's hope, right, is that Nico can flip those defensive linemen. Like if Nico's in the building and the if you're a defensive edge guy and you're like oh Mm. if i wasn't going to consider tennessee but what i mean roddy garner being on staff here should help and that was one of the thoughts overrated oh okay that's that's enough we had him we had him for a while we also had lee martinez uh, and he's our uh, but garner was there with the early uh kirby smart era yeah um Um, but i don't know trey scott rodney gardner I'm more worried about just having enough corners. Like, the spring ball situation was dire uh, in the cornerback situation. And I'm also worried about the off the line. Like, the tackle spots are a huge question mark. Uh, that's that's my big thing for you yeah. guys, right? Because, um, I mean, as explosive and good as that Tennessee offense was last year and uh, just kind of as as apt as they are to take advantage of somebody that's, that's just moving a mm. little slow pre-snap or, you know, just just isn't quite mentally there or, or is a little bit out of position. The the antidote is good good defensive line play. Uh mm-hmm. granted you're not gonna run into twenty twenty one Georgia's defensive line. I was gonna say Kentucky was trying to do that ever. too, but Kentucky didn't have an answer for that. Like they just Correct. If you get the ball out quick, it doesn't really matter in some instances. But if you want to run, like you can't. <laughs> I wish we could play Missouri's defense and their defensive line week to week because that yeah. was that was fun. But that, most defensive lines in the SEC are not like that. <laughs> yeah, and I, I guess my point is like I think that Tennessee uh, kind of is is on that trajectory to be in like a a nine win team in the yeah. regular season, which is great and definitely a, a step up from where they've been for a lot of the last decade or so. Um, but also it's also need Nico Arch. We need Nico and Arch, and the Arch that would be pretty that, like that would just be incredible. It'd well, an Arch going to Knoxville, yes, with his last name in mm-hmm. a Georgia uniform to play the other five-star quarterback. Yes, you know, kind of the guy. It's like which one is the guy? It's mm-hmm. kind of a situation that uh, we really maybe haven't seen totally in the SEC since like the the Tebow Stafford Mallet year. Remember yeah. that uh, back in 07? I love that you threw or 06. In there. Yeah. Well, I mean, he was, yeah. Does anyone have a Scantron? Oh, um, my God. Yeah. Wasn't he the, did he hurt himself on a moped? Was it a, a scooter or a moped where he broke his, like, ankle? What was that? He fell off something. I don't remember. I mean, I know his Ryan coach Mallet fell off, fell off either a moped or, hold on, did, am I misremembering that? Mallet, scooter. Usually if it's a scooter incident, it's it's UGA related. Yeah. And, and there's um, an arrest involved. Body cam, crossing a line vehicle. It doesn't matter. I, I, there was something else with him, and I can't remember what it was. Or maybe he was just riding around on an, a scooter a bunch with the boot. I don't know. I think that's what it was. I think he used to like cruise around campus on maybe a scooter. Maybe that's what it was. Like, okay, I just have possibly this, shirtless. I have this or... very distinct memory of Ryan Mallet on a scooter with his leg like in a uh, thing. So I don't know. I, now I got to do a whole rabbit hole. Thanks a lot, Graham. That's my no evening. problem. Yeah. Well, anytime you can. You know, I'm here for that. Um. Yeah, so I guess I guess with the SEC East this year, like I think that Tennessee, it, it's kind of that Tennessee Kentucky battle again. Mm-hmm. But I think well, that, apparently the Booker's like Florida. Florida has higher SEC odds than Tennessee. And I know. Kentucky. Which with that, like I'm always like, is there something? I don't know. But I think 
Uh, I've been talking about this online lately a lot. There is an epidemic. An epidemic. I know that's a very dramatic word, but I am yeah. I am using it. I'm ready. I when don't know it, where you're going with this. When it comes to preseason prognostication and okay. talking about uh, you know college football this time of year and throughout the summer, there you're is an really epidemic. going at South Carolina fans here. Yes, I am actually, but yeah, it, it's a massive issue. The overvaluing of quarterback slash wide receiver play and the mm. undervaluing of line of scrimmage slash defensive play is super dramatic. And that's how, you know, we, we end up with uh, some of the, you know, PFF writing articles of can South Carolina win the SEC East and no. all of that. Here's no, the answer. They can't. No, they yeah. cannot. And it's totally unfair to Shane Beamer, who is doing a really good job there and is a culture fit, which is the first box I think you should check mm. on any coaching search. Uh, much like Hypel is in Knoxville. But, yeah, like any South Carolina coach that has a seven-win season is doing a fantastic job, a yeah. fantastic job. And I'm sorry, but uh, Spencer Have Rattler – schedule? Like there's just no path. There's no, no path. there's not. And it's also like even if Spencer Rattler comes to South Carolina and turns out to be what we thought he was going to be out of high school – Yeah. Uh, he still needs time to throw the football. Mm-hmm. Uh, the tight end that came in, I'm sorry, like the, Sternberger the, or whatever. Yeah, um, out of Oklahoma, but yeah. like in the SEC, he's like number four is, on the depth chart at Georgia right now. Right, exactly, and it's like you know, I mean, this maybe even speaks more to how good Brock Bowers was last year, but mm. like in the SEC, you have to be a really, really good tight end to kind of get any space or separation because the athletes at, at outside linebacker yeah. and inside linebacker and safety in the SEC are a totally different level than what you're seeing in Unless any you're other conference. Unless you're playing Tennessee and our linebackers with uh, uh, Beasley and uh, Banks. Uh, that's true, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, even, you know, even Toto gets burned all the time at Alabama. We don't say his name on this podcast anymore. I'm sorry. Uh, that guy. My HD. uncles cannot. They were anti. Like the Toa Toa one stung, man. I mean, everybody leaving sure was is tough, but Toa Toa. I mean, Jermaine Burton to yeah. Alabama after, like, emotionally as a fan, like sitting there <laughs> in the stadium, like watching him have like a couple. You know, Georgia goes down and he catches a a pass on the first play mm-hmm. off of the kickoff that like felt really big from a momentum standpoint. Then he does a double move that gets a pass interference call, and then. Two plays later is the, the A.D. Mitchell touchdown on the yeah. offsides. Like, that was kind of the game in a lot of ways. And all of a sudden, it's like, now he's posting on Twitter. Dude, there's a picture of him on Twitter receiving an, an SEC championship ring from Nick Saban at, like, on the A at uh, Alabama spring game in the rain. And I'm like, that's odd, you know? Um, yeah, that's that's really strange. Like, you know, and he's talking about like, I think he tweeted something about like, yeah, like back to back, we're going back to back, and it's like, well, no, like you no, might be, but yeah. yeah, it's totally yeah. So I just I don't I don't understand it. It is weird. Emotionally, Can I read you South Carolina schedule odd. real quick, by the way? Please, just yes. to, like South Carolina fans, we want like your look. Did you deserve? Did Shane Beamer deserve to go co coach to the Newcomer of the Year award, the Spurrier Award, Hypel after just what happened in Knoxville? Absolutely not. Is that Shane Beamer's fault? Absolutely not. 
Um, that being said, this schedule <laughs> for South Carolina, they go to Arkansas in week two. They get Georgia Ugh. at home in week three. So then you have Charlotte. So we're looking at two and two. Uh, SC State, three and two. Then they go to Kentucky, A&M at home the following week. Like, the mm. back-to-back of those two physical teams, like, they're they're losing both those games. And then you go to Florida. I don't know. I'm not in on A&M, but, uh, yeah. Oh, you're not in on them over South Carolina. I just don't trust. I, I think, like, maybe in two years, you know, talk to me in 2023. But, okay. uh well, I just think get, I think they're going to lose a game like that somewhere along the way, so it might as well be South Carolina. But well, let's know. just give them that. Okay. Then you still have Florida. Their last three games is Florida on the road, Tennessee <laughs> at home, and then Clemson on the road. And Florida will probably have some things figured out. By exactly. That point. Yeah. Um, I'm going to Columbia for that South Carolina. I need it in my bones. I need the 56 to seven in Columbia. Have you been to Columbia? To I have not. No. Oh, buddy. Um, that's like. My experience in Columbia, going back to, to being a, a kid, because yeah. I grew up in North Carolina, so that was like the closest Georgia game every year was yeah. when they played in Columbia. Uh, rabid, rabid fan base before games. They will hurl expletives and, um, you know, different slurs and things at, at you. Uh, and then, like, as soon as you go up by 14 in the second mm-hmm. quarter – everybody's really nice they offer you fried chicken and you know it's all good but don't you never want to lose a game in there because when that fan base starts believing that they're good yeah um just because that's a kind of a generational situation for them it's 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 rough man it gets it gets wild it gets aggressive it gets it gets kind of crazy and uh that's the most frightened i've ever been uh coming out of a, a stadium was after the 2010 Georgia South Carolina game. Interesting. Yeah. No, the, the, the only one I have circled this year is Florida. Like if they don't beat Florida this year, then I don't know when it's coming. Like they, it's just Florida dictates everything with Tennessee season. This, this that's fall. very true. What is your thoughts on Florida? Cause you just mentioned, you yeah. know, the, the, the odds thing. Like I'm kind of personally like, is that's sort of what spurned my comment about this epidemic yeah. of overvaluing quarterback play. But it seems like everyone's projecting Anthony Richardson to be a possible top 10 NFL draft pick next year. Yep. And uh, Lord knows he's an extremely physically talented athlete, mm-hmm. but doing the film breakdown preview stuff that, that we do on our show before the Georgia Florida game last year, it was very clear. Like he uh, just isn't quite there yet with how he gets through his reads. And uh, that LSU secondary was just really bad. And so, they also really need Justin Shorter to be the guy. Like, Shorter, at this point, it, he's got to be a number one. Is it like, too late? I mean, if I it is, then they're late. in trouble. Like, well, Richardson even if he can. is the number one option, I think if Justin Shorter is your number one option, unless something dramatically changes with what we know about him, that you're in big trouble. Yeah. I don't know. Florida, and they're just a wild card. I don't know. Uh, Florida, it knocks I think old. Utah is going to wax them. Interesting. Week one in in Gainesville. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I probably have Florida there, but I think it'll be. Do you think Florida's going to beat Utah? On at home, yeah, I think so. I just think Utah, like I like Utah. Kyle Winningham, death taxes. Utah yeah. being undervalued in the Pac-12. Yes. Uh, Cam You're Rising. in Pac-12 country. You hear all the Utah chatter, <laughs> dude. I'm very close to Utah. Yeah. Um, literally a stone's throw away. Yeah. Uh, yes, but I, I also <laughs> think like Utah's built on the line of scrimmage to to play with an SEC team in a way yeah. that maybe your average Pac-12 team isn't. 
but you know we've got Oregon and and Utah coming coming to East yeah. for opening weekend games. That'll be kind of interesting. Absolutely. Graham, how do the good folks keep up with uh, everything going on with the show, the dog sports, dog out west, all kinds of dogs all over the place? What can the good folks look out for this week? <laughs> yeah, uh, you can follow me on Twitter at dog out west. Dog is obviously spelled the proper way with an A and a W. Right. Um, yes, we have a show on YouTube where we break down film and uh, you know scheme analysis, X's and O's. Also give plenty of hot takes and all of that fun stuff. Uh, that is called Dog Sports Live. Please find us on YouTube. Subscribe. There's a good in-depth 108-play uh, spring game breakdown up there right now. If you're a Georgia fan finding this and want to dig a little deeper into the fourth-team defensive tackle, <laughs> yeah. go and check it out. Absolutely. So. I wish we could do that with uh, Tennessee, but we played at Haslam Field in the spring because Knoxville was getting uh, – Neil was getting worked on. So. I didn't realize that. Yeah, okay. it was. Uh, Interesting. It was a little. It, it, I wouldn't call it a spring game. It was a. It was a weird practice, is what I would call it. Uh, <laughs> Graham Coffee, thank you as always, and I'll talk to you soon. Thank you. All right, we're back here on the Chase Almost Podcast, where I am now joined by a first timer. He covers the Bears up there in Chicago. He doesn't get to talk about them enough on a weekly basis, so. Will, I wanted to ensure that you were able to talk Bears just a little bit more on this Wednesday evening. Will DeWitt is here. Will, good evening, sir. How are you? I'm doing quite well, Chase. Thank you for having me on. And like you said, never have enough opportunity to discuss the Chicago Bears. And I look forward to uh, you know, giving you some insight here throughout the evening. Well, I think we should start with the draft. Now that you've had some time to digest it, and what uh, the new regime uh, did and what they elected to do. Um, it was interesting because, I mean, I, I, I was gobbling up all kinds of different draft takes and coverage. I'm a big college football guy, so I knew a pretty healthy amount of those guys and watched them, but um, obviously not an expert, and I like to lean on other folks and where, where they're coming from with uh, NFL draft takes and value and all that kind of stuff. But it seems like the Bears were one of the more uh, polarizing drafts I had listened to where uh, – I think my this is I think where we can begin is that my sentiment when I read and just watched and looked at who they took that my perspective was that if you remove Justin Fields from the equation in Chicago and you just pretend that uh, Trevor Simeon is under center this fall then I think everyone's like, I totally get what they've done. I totally get the slow rebuild. We're just going to take good players. We're going to draft well. We're going to draft based on our board. We're not going to worry about placating a second-year quarterback that we just took super high that has all this enormous pressure on him to succeed and to bounce back after what happened in his rookie year. And they just didn't do that. So I, I thought it was really interesting the way they went about this draft because you can't, when you're in the building, exclude Justin Fields. But I guess that's my my perspective. Is that a fair perspective to have? Is that something you found a lot with other Chicago fans? Is that what you you felt personally? Where are you at with it? Yeah, no, all great questions. So even though the Bears went defense heavy yes. to start, uh, they did. Uh, Ryan Poles, the new general manager, mm-hmm. sat down with Justin and went through tape of all the receivers in huh. the draft and kind of got his input on them and said, you know, we're looking, but we're not going to reach 
for a wide receiver. And when the Bears were on the clock uh, with pick number 39 in the second round, mm. there was already like seven, eight receivers off the board. And they stayed true to it, uh, which I appreciate. Uh, over the former regime, I felt like they did reach for need uh, quite mm. a lot. And obviously the results haven't been there. And the best general managers do kind of stick to their board, best player available. Even if it's not a need right now, it's going to end up being one. Mm. But that's not the case for the Bears. Even though they didn't go offense they got two plug-and-play starters on defense, so with Kyler Gordon, mm. uh, cornerback, as well as Traquan Brisker at safety. Two needs that the Bears did have entering the draft on the defensive side uh, of the ball. You got two physical guys in your secondary with ball production, and that's something that the Bears have been lacking mm. uh, since 2018, uh, that big season that they had. And with the new head coach, Matt Eberflus, in and his philosophy on defense, it's all about hustle intensity and takeaways and so that's what uh you know they're really getting some young guys in and they mentioned too post-draft like the benefits of bringing in two young players in the secondary to kind of grow within this defense with Mm -hmm. one another uh so i'm excited about what the bears did early on uh, in this draft really the whole draft uh, as a whole and uh, I know there are a lot of fans that, like you said, it's polarizing that were just kind of mm. pissed off about it because they want that immediate help for Justin. Mm. But again, at the same time, you want the like the third or fourth best cornerback in the draft, maybe your highest graded cornerback in the entire draft, or are you going to settle for the you know the eighth, ninth best receiver just at that point? Uh, so I'm happy they didn't go that route. And then you waited till the third round. They got a uh, they got Bayless Jones Jr. out of Tennessee. You're wearing the hat. Actually, after the show, you should tell me a little bit more about him. But he's someone that I identified uh, in the pre-draft process as a prospect that I really liked. Mm -hmm. Big, tough receiver uh, with the ball in his hands. Can make guys miss, run over some guys as well. Good returner. Good returner. I think he was uh, second in the NCAA in punt return yardage. And then also in the top 10 in kick return average as well. So. He's able to kind of do a little bit of everything uh, the mm-hmm. Bears need, uh, and I like it. People are just upset about his age, uh, yeah. 25. <laughs> I know he's going to be good. He'll he's, help right th- away. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, see, and that's what I'm starting to see as well, uh, just based off of like what I've been able to extrapolate uh, throughout mm-hmm. his tape uh, over in Tennessee. But I like the Bears what they're trying to do here. You know, they already said like we're going to have plays designed around Bayless. Like he's going to yeah. get the ball and he's going to do what he can, uh, what he does like special, and that's just make plays. He led the entire draft class in yards after the catch uh, on mm-hmm. average, and that's what we need here in Chicago. We were piss poor in that department uh, for the past couple of years, so I understand the signing. I like it, and I know people are upset about his age, but if he gives you a rookie contract that he exceeds your expectations or meets them and you want to give him a deal, even if he's 29, like that's a good position to be in, like to weigh that option down the road. I don't understand uh, people's concern uh, about him being a little bit older uh, mm-hmm. and getting experience. He seems very mature, yeah. uh, which at the receiver position, sometimes you get those divas uh, as well. And he's definitely seems he's like a he's a leader. He, exactly. He mm-hmm. seems like he's a leader, a team first guy and someone that just wants to get to work and, be a you know a true professional and mm-hmm. really fine tune his craft. So I like him a lot. And then afterwards in the draft, uh, their next two picks were high upside guys: uh, Dominic Robinson, mm-hmm. uh, who's a real a guy who transitioned from receiver to edge, uh, yeah. and then a Braxton Jones over at tackle. So I, I like betting on some upside. Uh, and then we turned three picks into eight in the very last day, and we were offensive line heavy, which. 
again, I think that's going to help Justin overall. You just you have you know so many darts, you throw yeah. them, and you hope that you hit a bullseye here. And I, I think they went offensive line four out of those eight, and if one or two of those guys hit, then you know we're in an okay spot. But I, I'm okay with the draft. You know, to kind of get back to your root question. Yeah, I. I wonder too, like if Allen Robinson's still on this roster and you just pay Robinson, is, does that change a lot of their concerns as well? Like if you just, you don't move on from Allen Robinson and you're like, all right, I know it hasn't been great thus far. You've had a rocky tenure. You've dealt with a lot of uh, iffy quarterback situations, Allen, but like Fields is the, he's the guy, like year two with Fields. We have a new offense and in place, like just give us a little bit more time. Um, like, I wonder if that clouds some of it too, is that Allen Robinson just not being on this roster anymore. It's hard to replace Allen Robinson yeah. in an offense and the bears haven't brought in a receiver to the same caliber as him, mm-hmm. as well as the same skill set. And I think that's what fans are kind of nervous about, mm-hmm. uh, losing Allen Robinson's true X receiver, you know, prototype as well as his production. I just don't think he wanted to be in Chicago, even with the yeah. new regime. Uh, reports even came out after they fired head coach Matt Nagy. Like they actually like discluded him from game plans purposely last year. Hmm. Like just like you know what, we're not going to run the offense for you like we did, uh, and kind of put it towards Cole Komet and Darnell Mooney uh, hmm. instead, and that kind of pissed him off, which I understand. Kind of sabotaged him a bit, which they franchise tagged him and then kind of iced him out. Uh, mm-hmm. So that's a, I, I wouldn't want to come back if that was the situation. Right. Even if they brought in a new general manager, a new head coach, and they tried their best, I would just want to go somewhere else uh, as well. But yeah, that's part of it too. Like losing a true number one receiver and not bringing in someone of the same pedigree uh, doesn't sit well with fans. But when you look at free agency, there was no one available that fit that mold other than Allen Robinson. Like most of the top receivers went either uh, via trade mm. or they got franchise tag or re-signed with their team. It's There weren't many top dogs like out there in terms of like go and get them uh, free agency. And the Bears didn't have a lot of money to play with as well. And uh, being a new general manager, Ryan Poles didn't want to you know, mortgage future cap space right now. He's He traded away Khalil Mack to kind of alleviate some of that pressure, give the Bears more room next year, which they're projected to be in the top five in cap space, uh, which for a team that's sitting with over $50 million in dead money right now, like that's going to be huge for the Bears. I feel like they're loading up on young talent right now, mm-hmm. you know, banking on developing, which the former regime – was really really poor uh, at developing talent Mm -hmm. and hopefully this new coaching staff can do that coach guys up and then from there find what your holes are in 2023 and you have all the money in the world to go fill them well i'm excited to see what he does because if there's one thing that is consistent now in the last uh, 15 years in the nfl is that once a chicago bears personnel guy is fired he finds his way into the atlanta falcons front office so uh, with Phil yep. Emery and uh, Ryan Pace, who's also in our front office now. I'm excited to see what Proles brings to uh, Flowery Branch and the Falcons five years from now. Yeah, how do you feel about like all the Bears leftovers going there to Atlanta? It's, it felt like every day, like once yeah. free agency started, like, oh, there goes Jermaine Effetti. Oh, mm. there goes you know, another one. Like, Ryan Pace just brought in his guys yeah. uh, pretty quickly, uh, which is a, probably a testament to the person uh, that Ryan Pace is. He is a mm. very good dude. And I thought he did a decent job as GM, but when he swung and he missed, like he missed, you know, in the biggest way possible, whether it be Mitchell Trubisky and Adam yeah. Shaheen in the second round, some of these trades, some of, and, and probably as stuck well with Matt Nagy a little too long. Yeah, which with how the Bears front office is structured, I don't know if he even had a say. Uh, at the yeah. end of the 2020 season, they brought 
uh, Pace and Nagy back. And I think mm-hmm. it was like you guys are t- you know married together. You're either going to win or you're going to lose. And if you end up you know losing more than you win, like you're both out. Like right. I think they were a package deal. Uh, after some time so even if they wanted to move away i doubt like he even had the opportunity to have like that kind of power to make a decision like that that's interesting yeah i mean i think Fontenot and uh pace overlapped in new orleans so i think there was like a history there uh emory uh predates Fontenot. i don't know why he who he has a connection with because he was brought in with dimitrov so i'm not really uh not really sure but yeah for whatever reason chicago bears personnel guys uh immediately find their way into atlanta after moving on but I am I am curious. Like, do you think Proles, based on what you, he said to this point, do you think that there is a behind the scenes serious commitment? Because he's not he's not the one who drafted Justin Fields. Like, he is not the guy who did that. Um, do you think he is one thousand percent committed to him being the guy going forward, or is he just like, hey man, you're not my guy. We'll see what happens, but I'm still gonna develop the defense. I'm still gonna develop. I'm still going to run this team the way I want to run this team, because ultimately I I have my own vision. And if that vision coalesces with your timeline as the franchise quarterback in Chicago, great, but I'm still rebuilding our defense. I'm still rebuilding other areas of this team before we get to you, because ultimately it's just, it's just so hard to thread that needle. And I, I don't know. It's just so interesting. And I feel bad for a lot of these GMs and these quarterbacks in general. It's just that like, the Josh Rosen Kyler stuff, I think, through a lot of this, mm-hmm. and I mean, just look at what two is going through right now in Miami. Where if you don't show anything in the first two to three years, it's over. Like teams will find like there's always going to be a, the class that we just had in the quarterback market is going to be a blip. By and large, teams are more more than ready to give you three to five years because it's just like the money is so much to give these guys now that like we cannot invest poorly, we cannot get this wrong, and. I, I just I wonder if you're the Bears and if uh, you're Justin Fields you're like man I I understand like this plan and like we're gonna like you said top five cap money next year and then next year maybe the draft is extremely offensive heavy and we surround my uh, we give me some pieces that uh, fit more of what I'm trying to do and like really let me figure stuff out in year three but our Bears fans can be that patient like are is Ryan gonna be that patient if he struggles significantly this year like. It, it, so much can change and there's only so many games and you only get so many opportunities before fans sour on you a la sam darnold baker whoever like i don't know i i like justin fields a lot coming out uh he's a local georgia kid rooting for him but uh i don't know what uh what do you make of that yeah so by and large he too was put in like the worst situation mm-hmm. last year uh, in Chicago. Uh, offensive scheme was not tailored for him. Uh, Matt Nagy, super stubborn dude, would not mm-hmm. change his system uh, whatsoever. Once teams figured it out, like after 2018, like that's why the Bears have been so mediocre on offense, like last in the league on third down, last in the league in the red zone, because he just didn't change anything. Like week mm-hmm. to week, it's the same game plan, made no sense. And for uh, Justin Fields to go out there in his very first start, going up against the Browns, and they're calling seven step drops uh, with no extra protection with behind this Bears offensive line that was not good, mm-hmm. he was just put in a position to fail last year, and it was very disappointing to watch. Going into this year, I do believe Ryan Poles is a believer uh, in mm-hmm. Justin Fields. I know he's mentioned it, like he said, vocally. has said, like, we believe in Justin and we want to build this team around him. But his actions kind of contradict that a little bit mm-hmm. just by the fact that he hasn't gone out there and loaded up on offense with some of this more household talent. But like I said earlier, 
there wasn't that much available that he could have actually brought in unless yeah. he's trying to mortgage the future, trading away a lot of draft picks. Uh, and I, the Bears have only had like two first-round picks over the last four years. Like, we need one next year. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I, we really need to keep uh, that first-round pick. Uh, but we brought in Luke Getze from Green Bay, uh, who was their quarterback's coach. Uh, and we brought in a few of these receivers, like Avalis Jones. Uh, mm-hmm. We brought in Byron Pringle from Kansas yeah. City. Guys who can make plays happen after the catch. And they're trying to get the ball out quick and allow these playmakers uh, to go ahead and do their thing. I envision them leaning a little bit more on the run than we've seen over the past couple of years, allowing Justin to utilize play action and then take his shots because he has a lot of speed on his offense too with Bayless, Darnell Mooney, and Byron Pringle. There's a lot of speed. So I feel like it's a patience game, and the scheme itself should help Justin more than probably signing a top X wide receiver in this offense. Like By allowing this offense to be built around him like his strengths you know get him out of the pocket uh let's lean on the run a little bit because that was something that apparently we running 20 times a game uh was a no-no under Matt Nagy uh I don't get it like let's wear down a defense and then start attacking them uh, a a little bit more but with this scheme being suited to his skill set having better playmakers at the position and a offensive line that on paper looks better Mm-hmm. Overall, I think he's Ryan Poles is doing what he said, and that is building around Justin. It just may not be as fast as people would like. And if Justin is the guy, he's going to be able to make this you know situation and just be better for it. Like last mm-hmm. year, I can understand it. He was behind the eight ball every way you look. Uh, but this year, with everything that I've mentioned, if he is the guy, he should be able to take that game to another level. You know, make a step forward i'm not going to say you know take 10 steps ahead like i'm okay Mm -hmm. with a couple this year uh show me that progress show me that you can't you have i guess you know that it factor and by the way Mm -hmm. like when i see him in practice like last year when i was watching training camp practices preseason games up in the booth like he makes some throws that make your jaw drop like holy cow like did he Mm. did he do that and i feel like we're gonna see more of that this year uh just with the bears being able to dial up the correct plays at the right time and allow him just to to work his magic uh so i'm cautiously optimistic that good progress will be seen this year but even Mm. if i'm not gonna say it's the same if it's the same though i think we do have bigger problems but if it's mild progress i believe that would be enough for him to still remain the guy for the next two years afterwards and continue to build this team around him interesting yeah i mean we'll see because i think what's interesting too is luke getsy is brought in as the oc um former green a lot of green bay packers uh in his history and i don't think it's a surprise that you bring in velas you bring in pringle um obviously the kansas city connection with your new gm but it seems like there's going to be a lot more of a run focus that if you're not drafting Montgomery early in your fantasy rounds uh, this fall, you're probably making a mistake. And I'm a big Cleo Herbert guy. Mm -hmm. I watched him a lot of Virginia tech. I think he's going to be a good player. Um, I I just, it feels like to me, they're going to protect Justin a lot more than what happened last year. And would you say that it's going to kind of remind, I know bears fans don't want to hear this, but is there going to be a lot of crossover between how the Packers have kind of, contained Aaron Rodgers as he's gotten older of like hey we're drafting an AJ Taylor and hey we're we're dra- we're not drafting a receiver in the first round we're not just uh spending all of this draft capital or all this free agency money on the receiver because we believe in your talent but we're also going to be a run first team we're going to do a lot of play action we're going to roll him out we're going to protect Justin like they protect Aaron 
and keep him upright longer. Like, do you think there's going to be a lot of crossover when you're watching scheme and just the way they do business uh, this fall between the, the Bears and the Packers? I do, and mm-hmm. it'll be interesting to see exactly how much of that does kind of come to fruition because mm-hmm. Luke's been adamant, like, I'm bringing my offense, like, you know, Green Bay, uh, he was the, the quarterback's coach, yep. he was kind of part of the ecosystem, mm-hmm. and here I'm going to be able to kind of put my, you know, my own stamp on uh, offense and kind of build it around the players that I have here, but you better believe he's learned a thing or two working directly with Aaron Rodgers, knowing what works, mm-hmm. uh, as well as protecting, because Justin took so many hits last yes. year, like, he has to be able to limit those whether it is in the pocket moving out of the pocket or when he's actually taking off with his feet like getting down and let's uh let's avoid some of those bigger mm-hmm. hits especially in that rib uh area because he took a couple of those again uh last year which every time like has me uh holding my breath but yeah i would expect some similarities in his life only back yeah. to ohio state yeah yeah exactly and one thing that I actually thought about last week that I'm looking into a little bit more that the Bears mm-hmm. have never really utilized is some of those rub routes, uh, you know, getting mm-hmm. some bunch formations and having guys have those settled picks uh, yeah. and just open some of those players up for some easy catches underneath. Oh, Vios is going to love that. Yeah, and I think so too. And that's what, mm-hmm. you know, people always think about, oh, well, Justin's going to have to, you know, you know, hit this kind of throw, you know, downfield, downfield. Mm-hmm. He, he has the arm talent to do it. But if we actually have a scheme in place that frees guys up for some of those easy looks and give them room to operate, that's going to be so helpful, not just for Justin, but this entire offense. Because so many times the last few years just watching this offense, and again, mediocre is the best word for it, if not piss poor. Yeah. Just so many times it was like, I don't understand the play design. It seemed like it's just a lot of curls. Let's have guys stand and turn and wait for someone to make a throw, and then let's start running after this catch. Like mm. there's never a receiver more likely like catching a ball in stride, moving towards you know forward for crying mm-hmm. out loud. So yeah, I would expect some definitely some carryover. And again, if the Bears can utilize some of those like those pick plays, those rub routes, like Green Bay utilizes, especially in the red zone, to mm. get, uh, like where that field is tight and you need a little bit of those extra extra space yeah. to open those windows, uh, then I'm going to be you know very excited uh, come this season. Vilas feasted on that uh, last year. He had one against Bama, uh, one against uh, he had the flat. Like he's really good in the flat um, in the red zone too. He's just he's hard to bring down. He's sneaky fast and he's also just hard to bring down. Um, I think he'll be he'll be really good. It's the people killing it. It's like no, Vilas is a good player and he's gonna be really good in Chicago. I think I feel uh, and it. right away because he's older. Um, I think he'll be pretty solid right away. Uh, we'll end on this. So when you look at where the Bears are going into this year, what should be uh, a fair expectation for this team in year one for Everflus? Mm-hmm. So. I wouldn't be surprised if they finished third in the division mm-hmm. behind Green Bay, behind Minnesota. Detroit had a really good draft, but yeah. I feel like I think our saying is, you know, Lions going to Lion. Like they just tend to do, you know, what they Jared do. Jared still under center. He is still their quarterback, so that should keep him in the basement for a, a mm-hmm. little while longer. So third in the division, I'd be okay with. Uh, if we're looking at win losses, seven to eight would be you know where i would see it i know a lot of people are like oh they're going to be like a three four win team i don't the bears there's so many team games in the last couple of years where they lost only by uh, a few points and the bears are an offense that haven't been able to score on average more than 20 points per game since 2018 Hmm. like what (laughs) like like they're like sitting there like 19 points per game like they should be able to exceed that this year and with the defense in the transition i expect to see 
I want to go back to like the 2018 defense when they're leading the league in sacks and turnovers mm-hmm. and things like that. But definitely, like I would, I would expect top ten in, in both of those categories, just based off of the the philosophy that they're preaching. Every man of the football, uh, they're counting this new stat uh, that they do internally called team tackles, and huh. it's every play under fifteen yards, uh, it's a throw, and then mm-hmm. every play on the ground, they want seven players to the football, mm-hmm. and those are going to count as team tackles, and they're going to have goals each week, and if they don't hit them, uh, then there will be like repercussions in practice to kind of hold some of these players <laughs> accountable. Uh, so I really like that. Okay. Uh, so if they go with this defensive mentality of, you know, let's take away the football, let's uh, rely heavily on the ground, win uh. time of possession, allow Justin, as we mentioned, to kind of, you know, do his thing, build this mm-hmm. offense around him, his skill set. There's And the Bears have the, like, like one of the easier schedules when you look at strength of schedule. They mm-hmm. don't have to travel a lot. They're like the fifth least uh, amount of, like, miles they have to travel, so they should be well-rested without a lot of jet lag. Why not? Like, let's have some fun. Like, eight, nine mm. wins, I, I think, is definitely obtainable. Uh, and that's where I'll keep my expectation. If they exceed it, amazing. I don't want to put, you know, too much on them right now because obviously mm. what I say here, they're going to take to heart and really kind of like, okay, we have to show Will. Like, we got to get these ten wins. Uh, but, no, like, eight to nine would be something. I would be ecstatic with nine, seven to eight. If they fall in there, I'd be okay with as long mm. as they're not winning. They're not losing games like I've seen in the past, which is like kind of them self-sabotaging. Like if it's a hard-fought game and they, we were just on the wrong side of it, we didn't have the ball last or something like that. Fine, but there's just so many times over the last few years I watched the Bears beat themselves, and I just want to see that be a thing of the past. There you go. Will, how do the good folks keep up with everything you got going on at C? How do you pronounce it? Like, because you're like, mm-hmm. uh, what do you say out loud? Because Denver, when they do the DNVR, that rolls off the tongue, and then you got uh, Arizona. But how do you how do you do it in mm-hmm. Chicago? It is CHGO, which okay. I, I think it's not Chagoo or something. It's not Chago or CHGO. It's yeah. CHGO. Uh, so yeah, that's actually uh, so. Like I did a previous Bears podcast. I yeah. got acquired by them, uh, which is still a really neat. Uh, experience overall to kind of get to quit my day job to talk Chicago Bears football full time. Uh, But you can follow the actual account at CHGO underscore Bears. Mm -hmm. Uh, You can find me on Twitter at Will DeWitt. Uh, My L's are ones. Or you can just type in Will DeWitt and you'll see a guy that looks like he's podcasting and that's me. And then yeah. the podcast is everywhere you listen to podcasts. If you want to, you know, more Bears talk, we do five podcasts a week. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like you said, not enough, uh, which is a totally different game compared to like one or two average uh, that we were doing uh, beforehand. But yeah, five shows a week, all Bears all the time. And uh, it's been a lot of fun. It's only been a couple of months, and I'm so excited to see, uh, you know, where we kind of take this thing and how we mm-hmm. grow and what we, what we have in store for the season. Uh, I, I'm just super excited all the way around. There you go. There you go. Well, I'm excited for you, man. Uh, good luck this off season and getting through the. There's only a couple of months, so enjoy it because when the regular season comes around, it's uh, it, it's coming and it's just going to be uh, it, it's a sprint, man. And yes, it is. I, it, I, I I know this all too well. It's a definite slog. Like yes. week one hits and then you're your in life's a grind. Over. Your yeah. life's <laughs> over until January, maybe February mm-hmm. if you're lucky. And it, I mean, it's worth it. It's fun, but it's yeah. definitely taxing all at the same time. But yeah, definitely going to take. You know, May, June, July, to kind of just breathe for a second yes, and get ready. But, yeah, no, thank you for having me on, Chase. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, we'll get you on more as uh, the offseason and season rolls around and all that good stuff. But, Will, you stay safe out there. Thank you so much, and I'll talk to you soon. Stop.
welcome back to the Chase Moose Podcast, where I am now joined by a first-timer, one of my favorite Major League Baseball, and specifically Miami Marlins writers. It's Daniel Alvarez. Daniel, good afternoon, sir. How are you? I'm doing good, Chase. Thank you much. Thank you so much for for having me. Nice hat, by the way. Uh, thank you. I, I I just made sure to throw on the Braves hat today uh, to talk yeah. Marlins, just to make it clear where our allegiances <laughs> stand, and that uh, my my hometown Braves uh, feel. Uh, sufficiently uh, represented. I could also show you um, the uh, world champion banner we got hanging over there for the 2022 season as well. Um, so. Yeah, you you, you, mm-hmm. you gotta show it. You gotta show it. You know, I I I can say that I kind of grew up as a Braves fan because Chipper Jones oh, no. was my was my favorite player. Uh-huh. And big cat Andres Galarraga played there. So yes, obviously, obviously in Venezuela we loved watching the Braves because of Big Cat huh. and because of that I, I ended up uh, you know admiring Chipper so much and I couldn't believe when I had the chance to to meet him in 2019. So what was the viewing experience like growing up in Venezuela? What were you able to see? How did that go? How did you get into to baseball? Well my my mother she she's a baseball writer as well and she's mm-hmm. been covering baseball for over 30 years and she she got me into this uh she mm-hmm. was the the public address announcer for a team in in Caracas my my hometown uh-huh. and and she she was actually the first woman to ever do it and she was one of the first to uh, you know women to to be covering baseball in in Venezuela so uh, I was able to go to the ballpark in in Caracas and meet the players and watch the games and when I uh, when I when I was growing up I, I watched games on, on, on TV. Usually the Venezuelan stations had games where big Venezuelan players were playing. That's why we had the Braves all the time because mm-hmm. of Big Cat and uh, later on the twins because of Johan Santana and the Mariners because of King Felix and the Tigers and Marlins because of Miggy Cabrera mm-hmm. and, and and so on. So that's that's how my, my passion for, for the game started. I played ball. I always wanted to be in the game in, in mm-hmm. some at some capacity and, and uh, thankfully I'm able to, to do it now. Has the World Baseball Classic become a big thing? Oh, uh, huge, huge thing, huge okay. thing, and and um, I think that Ven- Venezuelans wait for the WBC more than for the FIFA World Cup, really, or another big event. Yeah, yes, because uh, baseball is that's that's our sport. That's uh-huh. where where we have our our big athletes, and huh. um, I I mean I I cannot wait. I I enjoyed the experience in 2017 being in Miami watching the DR against the US. I think. That I that I have never been able to see uh, a more electric atmosphere than that one, and I've been to big games in in the Caribbean and Game Seven of the World Series and All Star games and stuff like that, but nothing can compare to to what I experienced that night in in Miami. And for for Venezuelans, we've had good teams um, mm. that underperformed in in the last uh, I don't know three four tournaments in 06 in 09 in 2013 and 2017 and and now we have the the feeling that with ronnie acuna we can we can mm. do bigger things for for 2023 yeah you're in good shape with ronnie i, uh, I yeah. think uh, that's uh, that's a good thing so um well that's interesting so when you're so with the world baseball classic is ronnie now the favorite player or is it someone else who who would you say like growing up you saw the most of was it uh, big cat or was it somebody else 
Like, how would you? Who is the most popular you've seen uh, in Venezuela? Miguel Cabrera. Miguel really? Cabrera. No, no doubt. Yeah, Miguel huh. Cabrera. I mean, what, what Miggy? The thing is that Miggy Miggy was able to be the best hitter of his generation and be the best mm. hitter in baseball from maybe 2008 to 2015, 16, mm. maybe. And you know, to have a player being so dominant for so long was something huge for for Venezuelans because mm-hmm. obviously we, we had Luis Aparicio who is now in the in the baseball hall of fame and he's the mm-hmm. only Venezuelan born player in, in Cooperstown. But Miggy Miggy was something special uh, mm-hmm. because because of how dominant he was. And and I think that uh, he he's not only the, the most popular one but the biggest player that we've ever had and, and it's a slam dunk uh, first ballot hall of famer whenever he he decides to to retire he says that he's going to play more for for two more years uh let's see what's going to happen there but uh i'm sure that we'll see him in, in cooperstown in maybe six or seven years yeah for sure for sure uh king felix too i think he's he's in i don't uh, yeah. i don't see any way he doesn't get in um, also had a brief stint. His last team, it's going to be a trivia thing, was the Braves. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. So that was weird. Um, and I think he would have actually helped. Uh, 2020 and COVID kind mm-hmm. of threw him in the back of the rotation out of whack because I think he actually, in a normal season, would have um, would have contributed. And I would have been cool to see Felix in a Braves uniform for a little bit uh, during the regular season. I would have liked that. Um, Daniel, so when you're looking at this Marlins team, let's talk some Marlins for a second. So. Uh, the NL East is kind of a dumpster fire right now outside of the Mets, and the Mets are really building a strong lead in the NL East. But I think coming into the year, I was very curious to see, like, the Nationals are the only team coming into the year that they were like, we want to lose as many baseball games as humanly possible. We are we are done with our contention window. Strasburg's out. Like, where Scherzer's gone. We're we're starting over. Like, we are we're going through a tough rebuild, and who knows, the learners might sell the team this year. Like, things are going towards a lot of losing in the nation's capital. But the Marlins had so many question marks because of the circumstances behind Jeter leaving. So you, from the outside, we were wondering, like, okay, does this signal that they're not ready to go all the way in? And Jeter was like, we're ready. We want to do this. Let's go. I want Nick Castellanos. I want to really go for the NLEs. I think it's winnable now. Or does this signal that, that hey, like, that we are not ready yet. We're going to keep playing our young guys. We're going to keep being modest in our spending. And then in a year or two, we'll get there. We're just not ready to be there yet. But there's just so much young talent, and you can make the case that the Marlins have the best young pitching staff in baseball. Like, that's that's coming. And um, it's such a fine line to walk when you're a rebuilding team like Miami where you've developed your farm so well that you kind of have to pick your spots really carefully because the Mets obviously have spent out of this world with Cohen thus far, and they were going to be there. But the Braves, they've gotten off to a bad start, a couple of games under 500. They just got shelled last night by the Red Sox. Um, Phillies, they're a huge, who knows, like hmm. mercurial team, but the Marlins are the best, like they, you can make the case have the best future, uh, of anyone in the NL East because of their young pitching. And you see how the ball's working this year, that if you don't have young pitching or if you don't have great pitching, you're not going to contend because the ball is not changing. Like I think offense is going to be down across the board this year. So the Marlins figure to benefit from that, but I know I'm throwing a lot at you to start there, Daniel, but what, what do you make of that? Well, it's 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 complicated because mm. when 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 we got into the 
first couple, well, not first couple of weeks, but the the last days before the lockout, the Marlins mm. were maybe the most active active team in the market by extending Sandy Alcantara, signing Avisel Garcia, trading for Joey Wendell, trading for Jacob Stallings, and they were on a path to maybe make more trades. Mm. The Blue Jays were candidates to, I mean, they, they were, I, I, I wouldn't say they were close, but they were not that far from acquiring Teoscar Hernandez, for example, mm. from from the Blue Jays or Brian Reynolds from from the Pirates. So they mm. were very active. And uh, then the lockout happened and it got uh, extended more than what we wanted. And mm. obviously that maybe changed some plans. But I, I, I don't think it's accurate to say that, well, this is not happening because Jitter, Jitter mm. left the team. He said, yeah, I wanted Castellanos, and we know he wanted Castellanos, and he wanted more players. Mm. But I want, for example, I want uh, $15 million right <laughs> in my bank account. And that's, that doesn't mean that I'm going to have them mm. uh, you know, tomorrow or by the end of the week. Mm. Um, well, same thing with the Marlins. I mean, they, they were not realistically close to signing Castellanos or Schwarber or Correa or Bias or any other big free agent. And, and they had to um, sign guys like Garcia and Soler. They were not bad signings, but mm-hmm. uh, I don't think that you can go, you know, really as a contender, you know, for a deep playoff spot or, or even the division with only those two guys because you need more ways to create runs. And, and mm-hmm. the Marlins are seeing that now. And, and you need to... to um, help and, and support your pitching because we've seen how how many losses they've had in the last ten games by one run, mm-hmm. which is I mean for, for me that that amazes me because they lost I think six or seven straight games by one run, hmm. and that that tells you that a team is not looking that bad when they're losing because they're just one hit away from yeah. either tying or or winning the game. Uh, they were also able to win seven and seven in a row before that losing streak. So that tells me, you know, this team can can actually compete because they're they're close now and and they're mm. in the game. Uh, but they need they need more ways to 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 create runs. To, they they need to be consistent. We we've been seeing Jesus Aguilar, for example, hitting uh, the ball very well lately. Uh, mm. Avi Garcia got off to us a very, very slow start, same as Jorge Soler, but they've been hitting the ball well. Um, maybe b- being unlucky, especially with Avisail, who last night hit a 400-and-something-foot single, which is insane uh, to mm. me, but it happened, uh, you know, uh, fading because of what you just mentioned about the, the baseball mm. and, and how it's not flying as much as it was flying the last couple three, four, five years. So, yes, they, they need to be consistent, creating runs, scoring runs, because that's going to be the only way to, to help their, their young pitching young pitching staff, which is only going to get better um, because I think we're getting close to, to see um, Eliezer Hernandez being moved to the bullpen and potentially calling up either Max Meyer or Edward Cabrera, and those two young arms are very powerful and uh, they have a bright future ahead. They can be... Um, their number one starter for any rotation in baseball, you know, in the future. So that's that's pretty exciting. The rotation for Miami is just filthy, and like you said, they're just it's a lot of young arms, and it kind of reminds you of the the Mets from years ago with all the arms yeah. that they had coming up. And the difference is, I think I'm going to bet on the Miami pitching staff and yeah. development staying healthy more so than uh, the Mets keeping that together. But we haven't mentioned um, Jazz Chisholm yet. 
Mm-hmm. So he has been extremely, extremely great to start off this season for Miami. What have you noticed that's different with Jazz this year than last year? I think he's more... I mean, the, the experience helps. And mm-hmm. remember that this guy played in 2020 for, for the last month of the season or the last three weeks mm. of the regular season when they were actually in the playoff hunt. And they, those were important games for, for the team. They ended up playing a couple playoff series against the Cubs and against the Braves. Mm. And he played for a full year in 2021, and, and that actually helps. And and he got off to a, a great start in 2021. Then he was kind of... Uh, off for for the, the the path of the season. I mean, he was mm. not having that uh, that good of a year, but uh, he ended up noticing that hey, I gotta I gotta be more mature. I cannot be giving up at bats, and I gotta be you know focusing more in my game in order to to get better. And I think that he's actually doing that. I mean, he's being get, getting more mature. Yes, he's a flashy guy with the chains and with the uh, earrings and with the hair color and with everything that he he carries to to the field that is not on the sporting side but mm. um we, i mean we love it and and he loves it and and he actually embraces it and, and he knows that he's a potential you know perennial all-star and, mm-hmm. and superstar and and he he kind of likes that and then what i what i've liked so much about jazz this season is how much i mean how good he has been in late and close situations when mm. the seven inning starts he's been hitting so well and that's something that you like to see in, uh you know with a player at such a young age when he he's able to to respond in big situations and mm-hmm. and that's something that he's just going to get better and right now he has to work more against lefties because for now the front office and and the coaching staff they I mean they don't feel that he he's gonna hit that much against lefties, and that's why he mm. has been benched uh, in almost every time that they're facing a, a lefty starter. Mm. Uh, I think that's gonna change uh, pretty soon because he's still 24, and it's not that. I mean, you, you cannot give up on that, you know, that young or that mm. early in, in his career. Uh, but he's just gonna be fine. I mean, as as much as he gets more reps and more playing time and and more experience, he's gonna be more mature and and better. Same with uh, Ronnie. I I mean, when I see Jazz, I see you know uh, a bit younger Ronald, not as talented as as Ronnie is, mm. but it's almost the same the same pattern, the same way. Yeah, we'll see. Uh, I'm still going to lean Ronald Acuna a little bit over Jazz Chisholm. Oh, of the, course. The I mean, 100%. 100%. Yeah. Um, I'm interested to see what Jazz's big contract, though, looks like because Ronnie took a heavy discount. Um, him and Ozzy, I'd still just the money that they're making over the next five, it's, I, I, I it's just, not good. I, I just can't believe that for the next, what, seven, six yeah. years, you're not even paying more than $140 million for those two guys combined. I mean, <laughs> it's it's just ridiculous. I mean, and, and before, because th- this was a big thing in Venezuela. And mm. for example, me as a director, owner, and writer for Alex Base, when I post something about a player mm. that signed an extension or signed from the free agency, the first comment that you see is, well, Ronald signed for less, for way less. And I'm like, yes, but you cannot compare the cases. And, you, I mean, from my 
uh, point of view. I mean, I, I cannot criticize Ronald for taking that. I just have to uh, <laughs> take my hat off to <laughs> Alex Anthopoulos and the Braves uh, front office for locking those two guys for such a low price. You know, that's that's something huge for them. I struggle with it. I won't lie. It feels unethical to me. It felt unethical at the time. Um, Matt Olson getting the contract that he did and the extension. And I just, I wonder how the locker room dynamics work because I like Max, uh, Matt Olson. And then look, I'm, I'm not privy to that sort of thing, but I am curious how that works because there's no path to Matt Olson being more valuable than Ronald Acuna. Um, no, of course not. And he, he's just going to make more money than Ronald Acuna for the foreseeable future. And you saw the disconnect come out about Freddie and Ronald after Freddie uh, mm-hmm. left. And we don't have to relitigate all that. But I am curious if that's just harmonial for the foreseeable future that Ronnie making what he does. And I don't know. I don't know how Ronnie's wired and how Ozzy's wired. But I don't know. It's 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 tough for me because I don't I don't like it. I won't lie. I don't like that they're making what they're making it's it's gonna bother me for a while and it's so weird because it's your team and you're like oh we had these savings ronald taking less helps us because we can go use that money on but it's like well okay but why not just give him that money and then figure everything else out around them like take care of your best player and who's going to be the best player for the foreseeable future I don't know. I can understand both perspectives on it, but it did make me uncomfortable at the time when Rays fans were cheering and very uh, very in on saving money for what Ozzy and Ronald agreed to yeah. because I, I didn't like it. I thought it was a bad look. Yeah, I, I don't think it's going to be an issue in, in the clubhouse. Mm-hmm. First of all, because Ronald was the one who took the decision mm-hmm. of taking the contract. And same with right. Ozzy. I mean... They, but they do they cannot... change when they get older? Because they took yeah, it so young. Ex- or like, do ex- they ex- have exactly. more people in their ear and they have more yeah. people? Yeah. But for example, their agents, uh, mm. I know, I, I don't know on Aussie's case, but I know for a fact that Ronald's agent didn't want that contract. Yeah. I and mean, he was telling them like, if you want to take it, take it, but this is not my recommendation. I think we can wait a little bit more and get more on, on you know, mm. free agency or maybe before your, your first arbitration case. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but... Ronnie wanted uh, he he wanted that I I remember um, an interview that he gave to a Venezuelan reporter after mm. his 2017 season, and he said, "I'm tired of being poor." And obviously, coming from those backgrounds in Venezuela and Curacao, you know, when you see that amount of money, mm-hmm. I mean, their life just changed forever. And mm. now I and I and I know this for a fact as well. Ronald is being is he, I mean, he's able to help plenty of people in Venezuela, and he's doing that every single year. And and then maybe one big reason of why he took that contract is because of that. And I and and that's something that I I cannot you know. And he can help faster, that. essentially. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And he's gonna he's gonna be a free agent by thirty thirty one, mm-hmm. so he he can still have a a big contract, you know, in yeah. his career. And he's gonna make more with. Um, sponsors like new balance and all this stuff that he's doing right now absolutely um with the young arms though in miami daniel who have you been most intrigued by this to this point this year who is who has intrigued you the most uh well i, I would say lusardo for now mm. because wh- what what he showed in oakland in the last couple of years mm. was not you know 
what we were expecting because by the time he made his debut, he was the 17 or 16 prospect in all of baseball. Yeah, uh, according to MLB Pipeline. So he, I mean, he was a big deal when when he got to Oakland, and he he had that uh, special appearance in in the AL wildcard game against the the Rays, and, and mm. he was lights off that day. But um, going going forward, he he wasn't that that consistent. And when the Marlins um, trade for him in the Starling Marte trade, I was very intrigued by that trade, and knowing maybe they have something going on here because the way they can develop pitchers and the talent that this kid has, it can be very dangerous for for the division mm-hmm. and very and very very powerful for Miami because he's very talented. He still has four years of control, four or five years of, of control. He's still twenty four. Mm-hmm. He's still very young, um, controllable, and talented. So I think that when when everyone's talking about Sandy Alcantara and Sixto Sanchez a couple of years ago and Max Meyer and Gabriel mm. and now Pablo Lopez leading baseball in ERA, um, we got to start looking more at Jesus Luzardo because he's going to be good not only this year but going forward for, for the Marlins, especially knowing that they don't have other than Trevor Rogers a big lefty arm. Uh, mm. Right now, Jake Eater is recovering from Tommy John, and Daxton Fulton is still very young. But um, Jesus is going to be so good for this rotation. But you can't keep everybody. So yeah. when do they run into that roadblock where they're like, okay, we have to sell high on one of these yeah. arms for a power bat? Because the offense outside of Jazz yeah. and – I mean, the pipeline is, like we've talked about, heavy mm-hmm. in arms, but – the offense it, there's a reason Jeter wanted Castellanos and wanted mm-hmm. to beef up this lineup there's a reason that Marlins fans are like okay the difference between being middle of the road in the NLEs versus really challenging the Braves and the Mets is the offensive side of things and yeah. the lineup and the problem with that it, it's like to get something in return you have to give something and yeah. the Marlins are in a good spot um because they can actually I mean they can throw out some heavy hitter names for a superstar bat in the lineup. What do you what do you think they do there? Is that something that they consider this year at the trade deadline? Is this something if they're in it, or do you think they wait until the winter to really revisit and make a put one of the the big names on the market? I think it depends because if if they're if they find themselves in a position to compete in July, mm-hmm. uh, they they will do it. I mean, they will mm. flip someone to other team in order to get a, a powerful Who's the most or likely? an impactful. Well, that's, that's intriguing because it could be either. I mean, the first candidate that comes to my mind right now is Eliezer Hernandez. But if, when you look mm. at his numbers, it's not maybe that attractive, but you know that the guy, the guy is talented. And then you go, you know, through the minor leagues and you see guys like, um, Zach McCambly or Daxon Fulton or, mm. um, other prospects that are, you know, coming up to the season uh, through the season right now, and and they're pitching very well. And either hitter, he, hitters uh, mm-hmm. in the in the organization, so, someone, I mean, people were talking about potentially trading Meyer or mm-hmm. Khalil Watson before the lockout. I don't I don't see that happening. But if they find themselves in a position to get an impactful bat by mm-hmm. the middle of July or late or late July, that can help them. In either center field or shortstop or, or also catcher as well, mm. they will do it. And and fortunately for them, they have enough enough depth. I think right now in the in the system to 
to trade for for a player like like that. It's a bad time to need a catcher. I, I was thinking about that this offseason with the Marlins yeah. and like where they've been at with the catcher position because for whatever reason, I think it, there's just been a dearth of talent at catcher mm-hmm. lately. Like catcher is suddenly like a really rare thing for teams to feel really it's good rare. about it. Yeah. Most teams yeah. don't feel good about it. And it's it's so difficult to evaluate that position mm-hmm. right now. I mean, to, to evaluate a player because you can have someone like Jacob Stallings, for example, mm-hmm. good framer, good blocker, but is he a great game caller? I'm not quite sure about that. And he, and we definitely know that he can hit. Mm-hmm. When you look at guys like Salvador Perez, for example, we mm-hmm. know the guy is a monster and can hit up to 50 homers per year, and he showed that last season. But he's not a good framer. He's not a good blocker. Yep. He's a good game caller, though. But what do you want? Because they had Jorge Alfaro, for example, who wasn't hitting, mm-hmm. who wasn't blocking, and who wasn't framing, and who wasn't <laughs> calling the game very well. But now he's going to... Now he, now he went to San Diego and he started working with former teammate Francisco Cervelli, who is now the catching coach for, for the Padres. Mm. And he's a completely different catcher right now. Good game caller, good framer, good blocker. I mean, the guy is locked in. And that's why it's so difficult to evaluate catchers. I mean, what mm. do you want? The guy that uh, the guy that can guide your, your pitching on the best possible way, but you know that he can't hit, for example. Or you want the guy mm. that can't hit. But it, maybe he's not the most ideal guy to be guiding a young pitching staff like the like the one the Marlins have. So you gotta mm-hmm. decide, and that's why it's so difficult right now because you don't see those layers of talent of you know in, in that catching position. And and that's something that I that really caught my attention this year with the international signing period when mm-hmm. I started going team by team. And mm-hmm. I don't think that there was a, an organization that signed more than three catchers i don't i don't i don't think there was and when i asked you know different um like cross checkers or international um signing directors Mm. they all of them told me you're not gonna find you know great catchers at that age what you're gonna do is sign a third baseman or a first baseman or an outfielder that you hope to convert into a catcher and that's huh. what's happening right now in, in 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 the minors and that's the the interesting part about the position that's interesting um i feel bad about my guy so i think there's just <laughs> one of the biggest uh sticking points this offseason with the braves was solaire or rosario and yeah. people were split and i was I was one of the people who said neither leave the memories alone like just rosario and solaire were just incredible they were great for that run yeah. but there was a reason Solera was at the bottom of this kansas city lineup mm-hmm. uh for the majority of the year and was just unfortunately really bad like it just was not working yeah. and i want Solera with his home run and that will always live in infamy in atlanta but i i did not want to bet on them for uh, to be able to replicate that over a 162 yeah. game sample yeah. and Solera gets his money and it was great to see him get his money and get another uh shot in miami but it's been more of what he was before Atlanta, unfortunately. And Rosario's out for an extended period of time in Atlanta, and he was really rough uh, before he got hurt. But I don't know, like what uh, what's going on with Solaire? What have you seen at the plate that's really just caused him to struggle so much? Well, not the best approach, and what mm-hmm. we've seen with with Solaire during his whole career, basically, which is lack of contact and yeah. chasing so much. Um, and that's that has been his problem all you know 
since since he was with with Chicago and and mm. I remember that conversation between well is it Solero is it Chris Bryant I mean who would you who would you pick you know going forward and many people chose including me chose Solero and and now and then you saw what KB did with the Cubs and and how Soler struggled in Chicago and then struggled in, in Kansas City and I know he had the 40 48 49 um home run season in 2019 but other than that I mean you I mean, he still has something else to prove, and, mm-hmm. and that's consistency. Um, I, I was really impressed when I was talking to to someone in the front office in in the Marlins, and I and I asked him like, "Hey, when is he gonna hit?" Mm-hmm. And he told me, "Well, pretty soon. And if he doesn't hit this year, it's gonna be the first year that he's not hitting." And I'm like, "What do you mean? I mean." Mm-hmm last year or 2020 or 2018 or 2017 he's like yeah but um don't look at batting average i'm like no 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 no. i'm not looking at batting mm-hmm. average i don't like that stat um, yeah but you see other stats i mean you see the strikeout per- percentage that gotta t- that that's gonna tell you something mm-hmm. and then he t- he tells me like well no but we're looking at strikeout probability hard contact hit probability and that numbers tells us that he's a good hitter and i'm like well if that's what you guys think, then good luck. But the guy's not mm. hitting, and I don't think he's going to be uh, a great hitter as Bruce Sherman, the owner of the team, mentioned uh, when, when they signed him. So um, I, I really hope that he can get you know a bit better, start making more contact because the power is ridiculous. I mean, I've, I haven't mm. seen some, something like that in Miami since the, since the Stanton days. Mm. Uh, and that's, you know... When when you compare someone to Giancarlo and what he did in in Miami, it's, no love you know, for Garrett it, Jones. It, 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 no, no love for <laughs> no love for Garrett Jones uh, or or Marcelo Zuna. But mm-hmm. um, but yeah, I mean, I, I know that I know that he's working hard for it. He's a hard worker. He's always early, you know, in, mm-hmm. in, in the, at the ballpark to to work and, and work on those details and, and hmm. that's why I mean he, he's an easy guy to, to root for and and hopefully he can get things uh, better here in Miami um, next prospect to watch is it Max who is it who's the next prospect Max. that major Max. Okay. Max I mean <laughs> if I mean when when I see Max Meyer I see the best arm in the organization since Jose Fernandez and I oh wow for me, it's, I mean, no hesitation to, to say that. And I was the biggest, biggest Jose Fernandez fan slash believer uh, that mm. ever existed, maybe. And and when you see Max slider, he mm. has like two types of slider. One that is very fast and can get up to 93, 94 miles per hour, like the Grom type slider. Mm. And the other one goes a little bit slower 84, 85, 86, 87 mm. sometimes, but the movement is just ridiculous, and mm. and it really reminds me a lot of Jose, a lot of mm. Kluber, for example, in his prime years with the with the Indians. I mean th- mm. those type of pitches, and uh, I'm really excited about about him and what he's uh, can what he can do in the big leagues. I'm not quite sure yet if he's mm. going to be that type of starter that is going to give you six or seven innings every five days uh, mm. because he hasn't done that yet in, in, in the minor leagues. And and he was, um, you know, for, for a long time, uh, a reliever in, in his college days. So that's something that they still got to see. Um, mm. But, I mean, when this guy comes up, 
is going to be must-see TV every night that he steps on the mound. All right. Well, what do you what do you we'll end on this? What do you think ultimately happens for the Marlins this season? Where do you think they finish in the NL East? I think they finish fourth in the NL East. Okay. Yeah. And I've, and I've been, and, and, and I think they can make a big trade either for either to compete or either to start like rebuilding something, you mm. know, for the short term uh, or in the near term future. I mean, it's not going to be like when when they traded Giancarlo or Real Muto mm-hmm. or Bialich, I mean, it's going to be something that might be able to help them. Like a JD Martinez starting. in Boston, yeah. I think. Exactly. There's, I think with Boston falling off a cliff, I think there are going to be teams out there that they can call, like even Trey Mancini um, mm-hmm. with the Orioles. I think there are going to be offensive guys that they would not have to give up uh, yeah. a significant arm for, for example one one guy could be jesus aguilar and if he yes. keeps hitting the way he's doing it right now i mean aggie's on the last year of his contract he has a mm. mutual option for 2023 but i don't see the marlins picking that option yeah i mean he, he can stay with the team for the entire year and he can hit for 300 with close to 30 home runs and you know whatever number he puts i don't th- i don't i don't see the marlins picking up a 10 mil 10 mil option for for aggie next year i just don't see that happening uh with the way they're operating um hmm. and i think that he might be a candidate to be to be traded uh in in july well daniel what uh what can the good folks check out from you and the uh great team over there at l extra base and then also swings and mishes um you got you're a busy guy you got uh, content all over the place what can the good folks look out for this yeah. week yeah yeah i I'm, I'm i'm a very busy guy in fact uh today Mm-hmm. May 11th, we are um, mm-hmm. celebrating our fourth anniversary in, in Alex Travasa, a project that we, we started um, four years ago here in Miami, and we're pretty pretty excited about mm-hmm. what we've been able to, to accomplish in, in those four years. So thank you, Chase, for, for giving me the, the opportunity to be here. Uh, they can fi- find me when you see if you see the video mm-hmm. at yeah. Daniel Alvarez EE. Mm-hmm. Um, EE stands for Alex Travasa, precisely. Mm-hmm. So... El extra base, uh, el extra base. You know the way it sounds. So that's mm. where you get where you guys can find me. There you go. There you go. We'll keep up the great work, man. Keep grinding uh, this season. Don't work too hard. But uh, Daniel, we'll have to have you back on again uh, very soon. Sure, whenever you want, man. Thank you so much. All right, we are good. I hope it did not take too much of your time this afternoon, sir. All right, that'll do it for this jam-packed uh, Thursday, May twelfth, twenty twenty-two edition here on the Chase Most Podcast you guys enjoyed uh this edition of the podcast with graham will and daniel it was a lot of fun talking to each of those guys about a variety of subjects so hope you guys enjoyed uh the bears marlins major league baseball college football georgia tennessee conversation on this edition of the chase most podcast because i had fun doing it um don't forget folks uh make sure that you tell a friend coworker, whoever about the chase most podcast here at blue wire pods and why you listen to it and why you think that they would uh, enjoy listening to it too. That goes a long way, and I would uh, I would greatly appreciate it. So, uh, share it out. Subscribe to us on YouTube, uh, the Chase Holmes Podcast, right there on YouTube.com. Uh, email the program if you have any email questions for us at Chase Thomas Podcast at gmail.com. Follow me on Twitter at Chase Double Underscore Thomas, and like the Facebook page at Facebook.com/slash Chase Thomas Writer. New episode tomorrow, uh, per usual. So look out for that. Uh, Tennessee and the Georgia series happening tomorrow as well. So very excited about that. Um, 
yeah, last home series, uh, big home series of the season. I'm telling you, sports, they fly by, especially Tennessee baseball. Uh, it's easy to forget and overlook when you're uh, in everything school and every sport matters. And shout out to Graham, who spit out his drink on this edition of the podcast when I got him. I'm one of my Tennessee homerisms, but uh thank you again for tuning in and sticking with me guys i greatly appreciate it hope you guys enjoy uh this content as i keep pumping out uh, a bunch of material uh for you guys every single day so if you could support it leave this show a five-star rating and a review on apple Podcasts or spotify that goes a long way um but yeah uh keep on keeping on and uh i will talk to you all tomorrow uncle derek how to do Nicely done, nephew. Chase Thomas Podcast. Hell yeah.